This podcast includes information provided by the issuer and does not express the views of the interviewer. This podcast may also include forward-looking statements by the issuer that involve certain risks and uncertainties to its business. Because forward-looking statements are subject to risks and uncertainties, the issuer's actual results could differ from those indicated in this podcast. This is Robert Kraft, and I'm your host for the Planet Microcap podcast, and uh, we have a very special episode for you all today. Uh, we have two guests from the same firm, two guests, one firm, and uh, real quick, just wanted to remind everybody that you can follow Planet Microcap on Twitter, at Bobby K. Kraft, and uh, go find us on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, all those. You can go and listen to this podcast on any of those. So now, like I said, join me today. Two guests, one firm. Uh, joining me is Gary Reed. He is the managing partner and chief investment officer at Accretive Wealth Partners, and his partner, Eric Fure, managing partner and wealth advisor at Accretive Wealth Partners. Uh, I met Gary, I believe, at an investor conference a couple of years ago, and uh, I thought it would be fun to learn more about his and Eric's investment philosophy and a bit more about their firm. So, with that, guys, welcome to the Planet Microcap podcast. How are you doing today? Doing great. Doing well. It's great to have you guys on. And uh, first things first, just have to, you know, I really want to ask, how, how's everyone holding up? How's we, we staying safe and everything? Uh, how are you, how you guys doing? Doing our best to uh, stay safe and stay sane in uh, sort of these crazy times. Eric? Just taking it day by day. Every day seems like a little bit more change and just try to take it all in stride. But yeah, everyone's, everyone's safe. Everyone's healthy. You know, I really, you know, we were talking offline, you know, we all have kids now, young kids. I mean, I feel like we could do a whole podcast just on, you know, how we're, you know, managing work with kids during, uh, during this, this, this time. I mean, we could go off on that. Do you guys want to talk about that the whole time? I have no problem. It's not enough time for that. <laughs> I'll, I'll just say that I, that I have a, a great wife that is, uh, much in charge of my two kids and we've got a six-year-old and a two-year-old and Certain days, it sounds like there's a holy war erupting between the six-year-old and, and, and the <laughs> yeah. uh, We're fortunate that my two-year-old does not take after me because that just would not be fair to her. I think we can all agree that all of our children probably take after our wives, and we're all very thankful for that. Yeah. yeah. Very thankful. I was going to say, if, if anybody hears during this interview, we're doing our little bottle training right now with our five-month-old. So I, apo I apologize if, if they happen to hear it. And also, I don't apologize if you're not offended. So there's that. Um, <laughs> so, so, uh, let, let's, so let's dig right in, guys. You know, um, as we do on the podcast, love to start with everyone's backgrounds. Uh, so, you know, Gary, first, what, what would you say led to your passion for investing? Well, uh, you know, growing up, I was always interested in markets and this and, and, and like it, it's a I grew up uh, in the 90s and, and, you know, the stock market was very much in, in vogue then and it was sort of unavoidable. And, you know, it always intrigued me that if you could, you know, do work and do research and, and invest and buy parts of companies that, um, you know, you can make your money, make more money. And uh, and as somebody who just naturally enjoys different challenges and puzzles and is a little bit of like an ADD kid, you know, the market provides ample opportunities to always be learning and looking at new things. And so, you know, part of what's important to me about, uh, you know, what I do for a living is, 
to constantly be learning and inventing and growing. And, you know, the market just provides ample opportunity for that. And it provides uh, good, good rewards for that too. And uh, good lessons also if, uh, that if you uh, don't do the right work or you get something wrong. So what was that, what was that first, investing experience for you you know what was what was was it in high school or in middle school like or college like what was it that you're like even if it was a loss like what was that first where you're like this is really cool i'm gonna keep doing this yeah so so i, I and i didn't have any money growing up really my parents didn't have a lot of money um you know we were fortunate that we were not you know poor but we were or we, we were well off enough that we never had to worry about what we were going to eat but so that was fortunate but we didn't have any excess cash or anything like that so I started just by doing sort of paper portfolios in high school and college. And when I got my first job, uh, you know, I opened a brokerage account and, uh, you know, I bought a stock because it went down a lot. And I thought, oh, this has to go back up. And that began the learning process. And, uh, you know, you know, the first one worked out a little bit and then the next bunch did not work out so well. And, you know, it's uh, it's it's fortunate that you begin the learning process with a little bit of money, not a lot of money, because. The lessons are the same, but the but the mistakes are are smaller in magnitude. Uh, uh, so we're fortunate in, in in that respect. But that that really kicked off what I would just call the probably 15 year learning process for myself of just trying to figure out how this thing works, how markets work, how investing works, how what makes stocks go up and down, what makes markets go up and down, uh, and just you know you start with sort of the basics, a lot of the basic investing books that almost everybody tends to look at and read, and you sort of work your way out from there. Um, and I was smart. I was uh, fortunate enough to meet some good people along the way who helped me with that process. And uh, I learned from them. I, le- I went and learned on my own. And uh, it was sort of just, it's sort of just been this continual learning process. And, you know, what's really important in investing is having what I would call a growth mindset. Um, those, who pe- those people who think they have it all figured out are the ones that, uh, usually put themselves in a position to get punished. And so, uh, you know, it, from where I sit in my perspective and from how we manage portfolios here for clients and for ourselves and everybody else, uh, you know, it, it's, we want to have that growth mindset and, and to always be sort of evolving because markets evolve as well. I, do you yearn for those simpler times? You know, I saw stock went down and I, I bought it. I mean, it's just a, like a simpler, like uh you know, anyways, I, I, I digress. I mean, I think we all yearn for no, so, 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 so it's interesting. As, as you get experience, so one of the things that I've had to watch out for in my own investing career is you get more experience and more knowledge. Um, you tend to look for problems and situations that not match your knowledge level and experience set. And um, what happens, and, and what I've learned is when you're doing that, you sort of have to keep, you sort of have to keep the, the exposure on the relatively modest side, because when you look for something that matches your IQ and your experience set, you're, you're going to encounter things that have a 50, 50, at least a 50, 50 chance of beating you. And so you sort of have to do, you sort of have to intentionally try to play down a level or two in terms of the thing, the, 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 the things you're encountering and, and you're looking at. I mean, that's, that's assuming that there is a playing field to go to as well. You know, I mean, I, I'm not saying, you know, there, what I mean by that is that there's opportunities that you might be looking at that you could take advantage of at that level. Right. Yeah, I I think that that's right. And you know, you don't make extra returns with degree of difficulty. So the the market doesn't reward you with extra returns for, for complexity for for its own sake. And I know plenty of people who, 
who enjoy complexity for its own sake, because this business attracts smart people who are interested in solving problems, and uh, you you want to be finding new 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 problems to solve. And um, you know, sometimes you just have to remind yourself that um, you know it, you can you can go back and solve the same problems a few times, and maybe maybe just uh, and and do just and do just as well, if not better. For sure. All right, so Eric, let's bring you in here. You know, what, what led to your passion for investing? How, and, and then also, how'd you guys need to start the firm? <laughs> uh, <laughs> so my passion for investing, uh, probably I'd say it started with my dad uh, back in say fifth grade or so. So I've always been one to kind of save money. My parents gave me chores to do. They gave me an allowance. I didn't spend my allowance on anything. I literally just saved the cash and coins in a box. And so eventually my dad just said, hey, you know, there's this thing called the stock market where you could buy interest in businesses. So you could be an owner in various companies. So you know, what would you want to be an owner of? So I was in fifth grade around that time and computers were becoming really popular. And so we had this desktop computer and every time I turned the power button on my computer, I saw a little logo come up, it said Microsoft. And I was like, what about Microsoft? And he's like, you could do that. And he said, so for every share of Microsoft you buy, I'll match it. And so I was like, yeah, that's pretty cool. So I think I bought one share of Microsoft. My dad matched it for me. Um, and so I was a, kind of a computer geek. And I just kind of kept it for a few years. I watched it all the time, you know, got the newspaper, looked at the quote, you know, did it go up, did it go down? Oh, it split, cool. Now I have four shares. Uh, and then a couple of years later, he said, okay, so you own Microsoft, what else would you want to buy? And I thought, uh, okay, I see a little sticker on the desktop, Intel. Uh, so I bought a share of Intel. Then I think like one Easter, my parents got me a, a share of Intel too. I was super excited about that. And so that's what I was kind of interested in is this, this, this idea that you could, me, you know, little old me in fifth grade can own a small interest in such a big company. And that was really cool to me. Um, I mean, this was the beginning of your dad getting stock tips from you. I mean, let, let's be real. <laughs> I mean, it's just like the very simple, again, it's that simple mindset of like, well, what are you using? You know, the stock market through the eyes of a kid, you know, what's the kid using every single day? And you know, it doesn't mean that it's going to make money or do well, but, you know, pay attention to something like that. Um, and then, you know, as my thinking kind of evolved, I went through college uh, thinking I wanted to be a portfolio manager, work in the hedge fund space. And then I started learning about being a wealth advisor um, and how you could kind of marry the two together, where you marry portfolio construction together with someone's individual goals. Um, you know, they have this money, they want to invest it. What are you actually investing for? What's the purpose? What's the meaning behind the money? Uh, and so marrying those two has just been very gratifying for me. Uh, and Gary has been a key person in trying to put those connections together for me. Uh, so in college, you know, I just reached out to a lot of people in the industry asking to talk to them. Uh, Gary helped introduce me to a few people and just got my knowledge to ramped up and accelerated quicker than I could have on my own. So super grateful to have met someone like Gary very early on. All right, so I have like the dumbest question I think I've probably ever asked in the podcast, but I'm going to ask it anyway, because I feel like it, it, there's probably people out there who are like, okay, what is the difference between these two things? So I'm going to ask it. Here we go. Dumb question number one. There's going to be more, I'm sure. You know, I, I, I'm sure you get asked this also all the time. What's the difference between a wealth advisor and a fund manager? 
Oh, geez, where to start, Eric? Eric? Do you want to take that one? Because uh, I, I, I started my career sort of as a as an advisor and realized I wanted to migrate more towards the portfolio management end of things and actually had to sort of retool and go to business school and do a. I thought I needed to go to business school to do that and uh, retool and get a, a CFA charter and all that other stuff, but um, you know, there's a lot. There, the, the differences are it's it's night and day. Um, Eric, what you? I mean, you help me on the investment front, and so you 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 know you do function in a in a in an investment decision making capacity, but also you're you're the primary interface with with your clients. So I think you'd probably be better to handle better suited to handle and answer that question now than I would. Uh, yeah, uh, the wealth advisor is kind of translating the decisions that we make in the portfolio in a way that the end client is going to understand, and so. Different firms have different end clients. Our clients tend to be uh, higher net worth individuals and families. And so, you know, we're not talking about people that have, you know, hundred plus million dollars. You're talking about clients at, you know, 500,000 to say, $20 million. And so how you talk to those people and everywhere in between, you know, these decisions resonate with them differently. And so being able to translate that in a way that they understand, the way that makes them feel fulfilled, um, way that makes them feel like they're moving forward with their financial goals for themselves and their family. I think that's probably the key difference. You know, I have worked for a fund manager before a good day for him was a day that no clients called and he could just look at his computer screen and read and research. Um, that's the opposite of what I want to be doing. Yeah. It's, I mean, I, I had worked at a, at a hedge, at a hedge fund uh, at one point and like, there's not, it's, it's, it's night and day in terms of who the clients are and what they're looking for. I would say that we spend, you know, I write all of our quarterly client letters. We do some blog posts. We do, um, we try to communicate pretty frequently with, with, with clients and we try to do it in a way that is accessible to them and we're educating them on what they own and why they own it or what our decision-making process is. And we're doing that. Uh, a lot of, a lot of advisory firms like to, you know, kind of, hide what they, you know, I'm not going to say hide what they do, but they, 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 they act like there's a lot of aura and mystique around it. And, you know, I think, you know, Kurt Schilling once said that those are things that are nice in a nightclub, at a dance club, but, you know, don't concern us on the ball field. Well, they don't concern us either. We want people to be educated and empowered because it's empowering. And the better educated you are in what you have and the more you understand and buy into the decision-making process, when you have a period of time in the market, like from mid-February to the end of March, um, it allows you to stick with it. And so a lot of clients ask about like what the right investment style is for them. It's, it's the one that they can stick with. And we spend a lot of time trying to educate and empower clients so they can stick with it. And I, I mean, through that period of time, I don't think we had anybody change their investment mix in a material way. And so we, as a firm, and we feel really good about that. So it sounds like what you guys are providing is, is also a personalized approach for each of your clients where, you know, depending on what their investment goals are, you're now then going to construct a portfolio or strategy around that. I mean, for you guys, is that sometimes hard because, you know, you have your main firm's investment philosophy, but then trying to marry that with what your clients are looking for, you know, how do you manage that? Yeah, so I'll talk about uh, the tools that we use, which um, we, use a, we have individual stock portfolios, which we supplement with ETFs and mutual funds. And um, I would say that um, we run a variety of different portfolios to different objectives. It's finding the right objectives for the clients. 
Um, the tools that we use across the client portfolios are the same. They're just weighted differently based on the objectives. And so the way, uh, you know, I look at it is, you know, we've got this portfolio, we've got that portfolio. And when we make changes, we make changes across all the client accounts at the same time. Um, but the, those, the, the amount of change in each given portfolio just varies based on the client objective. And Eric, do you want to speak to sort of identifying the objectives and, and sort of how that fits in? Yeah, I mean, that's kind of uh, more the art than the science in this, uh, especially recently as the markets have run up, people overestimate what the risk tolerance is. Um, and then something like February, March, April happens and people completely reassess the risk and they realize, eh, maybe I took a little too much risk and that was not the right thing. Um, but just being realistic with clients, putting together a long-term plan for them so they understand here's the money I have, here's what's realistic in terms of my expectations, you know, the return that I could expect to generate. Um, and based on my lifestyle and my needs, can I accomplish everything I want to accomplish? The, you know, I, see a couple months ago I had a client he, he you know, had an account with $300,000 in it and he said you know can I take about $3,000 a month out of this yeah you can but just understand that you're going to work that account down quickly um, and if anyone's telling you otherwise then you go the other way um, and so after we go some back and forth and we really hone in on well what do you actually need the money for is this more just for your safety is it to pay your bills is it you know what other alternative strategies should we be looking at because if you really need that three thousand dollars a month and this is all you have you know, that's a, that's a bigger issue that needs to be addressed uh, and so just spending that time up front with the client to understand what their needs are what their expectations are and reconciling those differences early on is that's that's really important no that actually you alluded to my next question i was going to come right back to you eric because i mean look it's it's been a difficult last few months, you know, uh, you handle the client relationships at, at Accretive. So, you know, can you, can you go a little further as to what the nature of those conversations have, have been like and, and how you've been helping your clients really manage their expectations and new risk assessments as you're moving forward? Yeah. Um, I would say uh, the credit you have built up in your, you know, bank with your clients in terms of how they look at you and value you, it's not going to be built in that couple month time period. It's a lot of the work that you put in up front and before that type of event happens. So typically when a client is asking me a pointed question about the market, the first thing I want to ask myself is, what is this client really asking? Um, and that's when I have to know the, the clients really well. You know, if I'm talking to a C-suite executive and he asks me, how much cash did we have uh, throughout April, March? Um, you know, I have to answer that question directly. Really, what he's getting at is, did we fully participate in the upswing? Uh, were we fully invested or were we selling on the way down because we were scared and we didn't know what was going to happen? And are we holding on to too much cash? Um, on the opposite end of the spectrum, I just had a call a couple days ago with a widow, uh, more money than she ever possibly needs. She has 60% of the portfolio in stocks, 40% in fixed income. And she said to me, you know, should we have some short-term treasury bills? Um, and I said, you know, this is someone that's a very novice investor. And so right there, something goes off. He says, what's, what's prompting you to ask that question? I said, well, I was talking to someone and this person used to manage a fund and they suggested this. And so really the root of her concern, her question was, I'm really afraid that the market pulls back again and I'm going to run out of money. Like, okay, 
we don't need to talk about treasury bills. We need to talk about that. Um, let's talk about that and the probability that that scenario actually comes to fruition and just comforting her, reassuring her that how we got here was based on a longer term, bigger picture plan and the portfolio can withstand quite a bit uh, and she should still be in great shape. Got it. I mean, Gary, you want to add anything to that? Uh, no, I mean, I, I've, I've been on a, more than a fair share of client calls over the past month because um, people want to hear sort of what we think and how we're thinking about things and what we were doing and what have you. Um, and I would say that generally speaking, when the, when the, when the sell-off was happening, people seemed to think that other people were panicking and they wanted to see how we were doing and, and boy, the phone must be ringing off the hook. And the reality of it was is the phone wasn't ringing off the hook. We were calling up, we were calling our clients to check in with them. And so people seemed to think it was all the other folks that were freaking out. And that seemed to be the general consensus. Now, the odd thing that I've noticed is that this recovery has been pretty sharp and robust. And we've had a number of clients that are more concerned at the, at the pace of the recovery than they were at the sell-off. And so um, that, that, that's been an interesting set of questions because, you know, this has probably been the most hated rally ever because um, people see the devastation and they see the economic impact um, and they don't understand how, you know, the, the market has come back the way that it has. And so, um, you know, we had, I think, a different point of view on this in, in late March and even were surprised at how fast that this has come back. We thought we were pretty confident that um, our, uh, the, our, our elected officials and our Federal Reserve knew what to do um, and that things would recover. Um, we, I think, Eric, you know, if you feel the chime in on this, we, we are definitely surprised that it's taken just uh, effectively two months for a lot of the, a lot of the recovery to, in the markets to happen. Uh, we, we thought it would take quite, uh, a bit longer than that. Yeah, uh, I, I forgot about that. It was, just, it was super interesting talking with clients during this time period uh, because you're, you're talking to them, and like Gary said, every, I mean, I've, I've experienced pullbacks with clients in the past and everyone will say, well, I'm concerned. I'm worried. I'm nervous. Uh, I think this is going to go a lot lower this time. It was, Oh, I'm fine. Uh, but man, you must be really stressed. You must be getting a lot of calls from clients. And, uh, it just wasn't the case. Uh, and I don't, I, I'm not sure why, uh, I don't know why the attitude difference for this. Um, but that was, that, that was definitely, very interesting and not what I expected this, this time. So I have to ask you. We, we, do have, we, we do have certain clients also that are pretty good contra indicators. Uh, <laughs> so uh, they, as, as they check in, it's sort of, uh, you know, they're wanting to put money to work. They're wanting to put money to work as, the, as we're going limit down. And uh, when, you know, they finally get towards the bottom and all this, they kind of want to hold off. And then they're wondering, like, like some, some, some it's, it's funny how just, and they tend to be um, more watch CNBC every day types. Um, I tend to encourage people to, to not watch CNBC. Uh, and if you have the urge to have it on, just leave it on mute. Um, but some people can't help themselves. I mean, I've, listen, I was one of those, especially when everything was going down, you almost can't help yourself because it's just too, 
it's just interesting uh, at the end of the day, just, I mean, I, I, you know, you're not really listening to what they're actually saying, but just seeing the actual news itself and what's going down. I mean, you know, you can't help but find it interesting, but at the same time, you're, you know, you want to manage your own emotions and your own biases and say, okay, well, what does this mean? Yeah. Like, how should I, how should I react to this? But okay. I wanted to, I wanted to play a little game. Okay. So we're, let's say we're branding accretive wealth partners as America's wealth advisors right now. And let's say you guys, oh, oh yeah, we're doing it. And let's say that we had to make an FAQ on your website right now for all the calls that you've gotten in the last three to three to four months here. You know, let, let's go through maybe some of those most frequently asked questions that you've been getting right now, uh, through, through this crisis, you know, and, uh, I don't mean to put you on the spot, you know, and, uh, and take a second, but, uh, yeah, man, let's, let's get some of those, you know, what, what were some of those frequently asked questions? Well, it's funny. We did a webinar on March 23rd, the evening of March 23rd, and it was our best attended webinar ever. I'm um, normally when we send out a webinar invitation, we get a, you know, a dozen people maybe show up. And this one we had, I don't know, 60 people on the call and it was, it was the best attended one we ever had because everybody's shutting their homes and they're wondering what the heck's going on the market. And we did maybe like three or f 10 to 15 minutes of intro with some sort of a, just an overview of what was going on. Very, very broad. Um, and then the rest of the call was just carved out for Q&A. So we actually have this. Um, Eric, what were some of the questions in, that we had that were sort of, because uh, we didn't, we also didn't see the questions ahead of time. These were people submitting questions. Uh, but so these were people's real time questions uh, while this was going on. I remember certain people had questions about whether this was going to be a wartime economy. Um, I think we had uh, certain people have questions about um, everybody had questions about where the market was headed and, 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 and where the bottom was in all of this. Um, How long is it going to last? Uh, yeah. Should we expect a double dip? Uh, that was a big one. Uh, what type of recovery the second is this? wave in this second wave people? I feel like they were having trouble separating the, the virus and the economy and the stock market. Uh, I think they kind of lumped all three of them together and assuming that stock market's not going to recover until we have a solution for the virus and the economy is going to be really bad. And so how could the stock market recover while the economy is really bad? Uh, and so people got really tangled up in that web and just trying to separate, separate it into three distinct different buckets that were loosely connected, but not really. Right. Yeah, they're really on three different timelines, right? You've got the, the timeline that's related to the virus. You have the timeline that's related to the economy, and then you have the timeline that's related to the stock market. And there's some relationship and interplay between what happens between those two things. But we we were of the general opinion that the stock market would turn before the economy does, because that's generally what happens. It's a leading indicator, and that um, that may start to that we we were of the opinion that may start to happen once we saw some evidence that the measures that were being taken were working in conjunction with a lot of um, fiscal from the federal government and uh, monetary from the Fed. And we had monetary from the Fed right away. Um, and so we felt there was a lot of crazy stuff going on in the market in March. Um, there were large ETFs, the most liquid bond ETFs that had the most liquid underlying securities traded, huge discounts to their net asset values. 
um, which shocked me. I sat there sitting in my chair, staring at my screen going, this is supposed to happen, but it was happening. And so we saw the Fed come in in a big way. Uh, it seemed pretty clear that Congress was going to get their act together and do something substantial um, and make sure that we didn't have Great Depression too. Now, we could still have a depression. I don't know if it'll be great. Um, what made the depression great was how long it lasted. Um, this one, uh, I, I'm not an economist, so I don't, I don't really know. But, um, and then we have the, so where was I? And then measures, uh, evidence, public health measures were, were working. And you sort of have to look at these things, in my view, as like a second derivative. And so evidence that this is working is just decelerating case count growth in places like New York City. Um, and so we felt pretty good that we were closer to the bottom in late March than, than the top, but we didn't know. And so we wanted to make sure that we were not under, so to participate in a recovery, you have to be there when it happens. And we did not want to be underinvested in a recovery. And so a lot of our clients' accounts, if we had a balanced account, for instance, it wasn't half stocks, half bonds. It was 40% stocks and 60% bonds. Well, we wanted to make sure that we, we got that right. And we, so um, we were through the period of, March was the most active time I think I've ever had as a portfolio manager. Um, and that's just, because uh, at a certain point you realize everything, it was, it was a full scale liquidation and you could see it. Like anything that was nailed, anything that could be sold was being sold. And there was really nothing that you could do about it except for holding cash. And we did have some cash, but, um, during that period of time, uh, you know, we turned our attention to how might a recovery play out and how do we make sure that our client accounts were positioned to participate in that? And so if we had a stock in our portfolio that we had questions about, um, and we were doing a lot of work going through the portfolios to make sure that we had businesses that were primarily equity financed as opposed to having uh, capital structures that weren't sustainable or were reliant on capital markets in order for them to function. Uh, so we, we were going through doing that and just, I, I never thought I'd have to stress test certain businesses to see what they would look like with no revenues for a quarter or two, but that's what happened. <laughs> uh, and, but, but when we had things that we had questions about, we wanted to make sure that we, if we sold it, we bought something that we had fewer questions about that we felt like would re recover, participate in a recovery faster. And, uh, and so we got, so during this, we made sure that, we tried to make sure that we were not underinvested for recovery when it happened, and that we were sort of positioned in such a way because um, we felt like the money markets would normalize first, the credit markets would normalize second as the money markets normalized and the Fed stepped in. And then at some point, the, the stock market would start to recover. And we didn't know when that would be, but um, we felt pretty strongly that we needed to be there when it happened to experience it. And so um, we were sort of okay with the idea that we might be a little bit early to the game, but you know, we, we felt like we needed to hold our nose and do our jobs. And uh, to be honest, you felt a little nauseous hitting the button. I, I, so, bet. I bet. I mean, you know, this leads to one of my other questions that I had for you guys actually was because, because it was such a quick turnaround, I guess you say, I don't know. I'm, I'll be, I'm, I'll be the second to admit that I don't, we don't know where the market's going. There could be a double dip. We have no idea. Right. But just based on what we saw right now, I mean, you know, what, what were you guys doing and how did you go about managing these portfolios so that you could take advantage of 
if and when there was a quicker recovery, kind of like what we saw? Uh, Eric, you want to start? I'll, I'll, I'll chew on that for a second. At the end of the day, our clients hire us to manage their portfolio to a certain objective. And so, like Gary mentioned, a balanced objective to us is 50-50, 50% stocks, 50% bonds. Um, we don't want to be trading too frequently to manage that target objective because that's just not necessary. But when you see such a wide deviation, we have to ask ourselves, okay, this has happened. We don't like it. But at the end of the day, we have to do a disciplined, unemotional job. And that's what we have to do. And we have to push the button. Um, you know, as Gary went into, there's a lot that goes into how the sausage is made. Um, the decision-making process, evaluating the companies that we have, evaluating the funds or the ETFs that we own. I don't know that we talked about any of those things or made any of those firm decisions actually during market hours. Um, most of that happened offline while the market wasn't operating. Um, and that's what we had to do. I mean, the deviations just got too big and too much changed in the world. We had to get clients back to what their target objective is and what they hired us for. An awful, an awful lot about the mix of what we owned. So the, the objectives didn't change, but an awful lot about the mix that we did, that we, that we have did. And so, um, you know, as we went through and, and looked at this, um, you know, the U.S. in a lot of ways was not very well positioned to deal with a health crisis coming into it. Um, hopefully a result of this will be that we'll be better prepared for something in the future. Um, that would be an optimist's view on uh, the fallout. Um, but I, I can say that we are uniquely, I believe that we are uniquely positioned to deal with the economic effects of this. Um, you know, we have the most dynamic economy in the world. We have um, the best rule of law, the best property rights. The bankruptcy code is an underappreciated part of our system. Um, it's easier to fail in this country and start over again than it is in any other country in the world. And the U.S. has special reserve currency status. It borrows in its own currency at very low rates. And the 10-year treasury is at 70 basis points or whatever it is. Um, you know, to borrow a trillion dollars, it doesn't cost the government a lot of money. Uh, if you borrow a trillion dollars, it's going to cost the government. But what, what does that work out to be? Uh, not much. Not much. Uh, not much. It's a 70 basis point. My point is, 70 basis points is a really low hurdle rate, even for the U.S. federal government. And so, the world wants dollars. We can feed them dollars, and we can invest heavily in the country. And so. That changed our view on our on our mix of what equities we had and what equities looked like. Um, we had a view that um, this would accelerate certain trends that were already happening in the economy, work from home stuff, uh, but you know other things too. Other trends uh, that were happening were simply going to be accelerated. Some were going to reverse, and some were put on pause. But a lot of things that were already happening were just going to happen a little bit faster. So the mix of what we owned changed a lot. Um, the mix of what we owned on the fixed income side of things changed a lot. Uh, we, uh, you know, when we read through the CARES Act, um, you know, that changed our view on corporate credit quite a bit. And so the changes in our portfolios reflected that view. Um, and so it was far and away the most active I've ever, I'm not an active, we're not active, we're typically not super active. 
Uh, I like to let the market do its work. I like to let the things that we buy do their work over time. But this was a period of time where so much changed in such a short period of time that a lot needed to be done. And I, at the end of it, I, I, I kind of just felt exhausted, uh, just mentally and physically. And now I'm just kind of bored because uh, it's sort of like <laughs> Charlie Munger says, you just have to sit on your ass. And this is a period of time where we sit on our ass. And, you know, we're looking, we're, we're lo- sort of looking at what the next leg of this looks like and trying to see, you know, there are, there are good companies that were disrupted by this. And, you know, all the comp- all the, everybody that has about a viable business going into this, we felt like should make it to the other side. Um, and people that didn't have a viable business going into this probably, probably wouldn't and shouldn't. And so now we're spending some time looking at and think about that. But to be honest, there's not a, there's not tons to do in terms of the client portfolios right now. Look, man, if you're, you agree, Eric? Yeah. Yeah, I'd agree. I mean, I'd also add pretty early on, we decided we're not going to fight the fed and we're not going to fight the federal government. Um, you know, I, I don't know what the opinion is of your, of your viewers on, on pal, but you know, he acted fast. He acted decisively. He acted in a magnitude that he needed to act in. Uh, then we needed to see the federal government step up and do their thing. And it wasn't until we really started to see them step up. And we saw, you know, the rumors of how big is the stimulus package going to be? How big is it going to be? And it kept on getting bit up, bit up, bit up. And so once you see that, it's like, wow, I think they understand the order of magnitude. And I think they get it. I think we know enough that we could we could uh it felt like they were always kind of a week behind a week or so behind what needed what needed to happen and so we saw you know an 800 billion package become a 1.3 trillion to a 2 trillion to finally (laughs) 2.3 but i think the prevailing attitude in in washington is do whatever it takes whatever it takes to to deal with this and so if the federal government's going to pull out a financial bazooka and fire it at the market repeatedly um I don't want to fight that. Uh, and in the first, the first shot, uh, well, now we have two shots or two and a half shots, depending on how many, how we're counting it. And they've spent three, over $3 <laughs> trillion. Um, and now we're talking about another couple trillion dollars. I think what's going to, uh, my, my personal view is that they're going to fire one more shot than is absolutely necessary just for good measure. And so, you know, it's, Sure happens. Uh, it's not my job to it's not my job to judge that. It's my job to evaluate it and, and make decisions. And so we did. Yeah. Got it. I mean, look, guys, if you're at all, you know, feeling like you got extra time on your hands, you could always come back on here every week. I mean, there's always there's always, <laughs> there's always more things to say. Okay, you know, as we said, yeah. we do a whole episode on managing kids through a crisis. All right, but uh, but we yep. dig- we digress. But, uh, you know, I also wanted to dig into your guys' blog real quick because it's a great blog. You share a lot of your insights on there. And you, you've had quite a few articles during this time period that I thought were very helpful and insightful. So I wanted to go over a couple of them with you. The first one is, uh, uh, and it's titled, Six Planning Strategies to Consider in Difficult Markets. You know, what are they and, and why are these important strategies during these tough markets? Uh, Eric, we'll, we'll go to you first. Yeah. Um, I- when the market pulls back the magnitude that it did, even if it only pulled back half of what it did, it's really difficult to keep a long-term 
perspective and it's difficult to fight your emotions. Um, and a lot of these strategies, you just have to think with a clear mind. So uh, number one and probably number six are probably the most important one is reevaluate your, your, your risk. Um, you know, th this happened. How did you feel during this time? Uh, what happened to your portfolio? How did it make you feel? Were you able to maintain your rational decision-making throughout this? Number six was stay true to whatever your savings and investing goals are. So if you have, no matter who you are, so if you're uh, a younger person that's saving, yep, don't, now is not the time to stop. Continue doing that. For some of my older clients, you know, they wanted to say, save to their uh, grandkids' 529 plans. I had one client that was on a quarterly schedule. They're going to make quarterly deposits into their grandkids' 529 plans. The market pulls back. Like, hey, you're going to make these deposits anyway. You have the cash to do it. Accelerate some of those deposits. You know, the market just gave you a pretty good entry point. I don't know if it's going to work out in the short term. Um, but when I keep a longer-term perspective in your grandkids' college over the next 15 years, I like this entry point. This is good. So you're going to do it anyway. Now's a great time to accelerate it. Uh, personally, if you have depressed assets and you have you know, a, a traditional IRA, maybe evaluate converting the traditional IRA to a Roth IRA. Um, you convert it at a depressed value and hopefully you participate in the recovery. And so all the growth, you're going to, if it's $100, pay, it goes down to whatever, 70. You pay tax on the 70. If you get back to break even, well, now it's in a Roth for that extra $30. Um, and then for some of the bigger clients that are doing some more substantial, complex trust strategies, you know, there's still a lot to do there. Um, and that's it's really uncomfortable to do some of those trust strategies or LLC strategies, but you know, things that you really need to consider and it's you're probably gonna be most uncomfortable doing it, which tells you that's probably the right time to do it. Right, G Gary, anything to add on that? No, I think those are good points. Um, you know, and I, you know, we mentioned that the clients, some clients are, have been sort of um, uh, suspicious of the recovery. And, and, you know, the question I had a call with, with one, one pair of clients who were, who were like that. And I said, well, to point number one, you know, during the midst of this, this crisis, did you, did you learn anything about how much risk you were taking? Did you feel like it was too much? Because that's a good reason to do something. Uh, I don't know necessarily that being suspicious of the recovery is a good reason to do something and just really hone, honing in on that. Um, and I don't have too much to add, add beyond. I think those are great points. So, um, so just a quick follow up on that and, and the, you know, when you're, you're dealing with, uh, you know, uh, bigger trusts and, and just the uncomfortableness of times like these, I mean, how do you manage your own anxiety and stress when you have to have those, difficult conversations and, and, you know, say, look, like, you know, this is what we see. This is what we think is going to happen. I mean, you know, at a certain point, you're kind of having to probably take a lot of deep breaths and just like, I, I hope it does. Yeah. Uh, we're hired to think about a lot of different situations and scenarios for our clients. So I spend a lot of time just thinking about my clients and saying, okay, where are they in this point of life? What are their goals? What are their objectives? How do we accomplish that? And whether the market's going up uh, or the market's going down or it's just staying kind of sideways and flat. Uh, if the market goes down, I would be doing a disservice to my clients if I didn't bring them 
my best thinking. Uh, and so if it's a trust and you need, now I think is a good time to reassign LLC interest, you know, as a way of gifting to your next generation, I need to at least make you aware that you know, that's, that's something that you should be considering. You may not do it and that's fine. You may think that there's more to go. You may not believe in the recovery. You may, there's a thousand reasons why you may not do it. And that's okay. But I at least want to get you thinking about it. Not every client's going to do a traditional IRA conversion. Not every client is going to suspend the five, uh, you know, continue contributing to a 529 plan. That's fine. But at least they need to understand the pros and cons and that these options are out there for them. Gotcha. All right. So I, I want to move now to, to the, the most recent article titled uh, The Wall of Worry. So Gary, can you explain to me what, what that means and, and if we're still in that wall of worry phase? Yeah, so like there's, there's this, I don't know if it's an aphorism or a saying or whatever, but it's, it's said that the market climbs a wall of worry. And so, you know, I remember uh, 2009 pretty vividly. And I remember coming out of, you know, the bottom in 03 um, and the market kind of coming out of the bottom. and what happens is, you know, there's, there's typically a strong, there's been a strong bounce. And then, you know, people who were underinvested or got out, uh, they want to get back in. And I remember in 09, there were a lot of people with money on the sidelines because they, they got out and they were waiting for the right time to get back in. And all the while they were sitting there while, while the market just kind of started to walk upwards. And, there were all these reasons why the other shoe was going to drop. You know, in 09, it was the commercial real estate is going to be next. And, uh, you know, uh, and so it, in this one, it's the second wave or it's, uh, which there could be a second wave. I don't know. But um, there's always some other shoe to drop that's hanging out there. And the people that get out, the more decisions you add to your, to your process, we don't, we try not to do any mark. We don't, we're not market timers. Um, and so, but the more, decisions you add to your process, the more complexity you add and the greater the likelihood that you make mistakes. And so basically it's, it's in my mind, it's kind of similar to 09 in that we have in March of 09, Eric, when did they pass um, the fiscal stimulus? Was it March of 09 or around that time? Uh, uh, Mid-February, it's like February 18th or something, 19th of 2009. Yeah, so I mean, when you, when you have everybody <laughs> moving one direction on something, um, you know, sort of the conditions are, I think the conditions are in place for the market to start to recover. And, I, and we could talk about theoretically why, um, you know, some things have done better than others, but um, it's sort of people hate the recovery, but yet the market still goes up. And as I look at my screen here today, you know, it's, let me look at my screen. Hold on. Um, you know, it's, there's a lot of green on the screen. And so people hate this. And the market's not doing what they think it should. It's not doing what the economic data says it should, but it's, it's, it's grinding. And so, and the mark, and the reason is the market is a forward looking discounting mechanism. And the minute it can start to look through this, it will. And these are long duration assets. So if you think about the a company, uh, you know, having a, a year or two in, uh, of, of down numbers in the grand scheme of things for these companies, if you think about the way analysts go about valuing a company, 
you know, they'll forecast out um, earnings or cash flows a couple of years, two, three, four, five years, however long they do it. They, um, you know, they, they, they use decimal points, which means that they're just being funny and they're being overly precise. But the way this happens is, you know, they forecast out a couple of years and then they slap a multiple on the back end. And that multiple, whether it's an earnings multiple, an EBITDA multiple, a book value multiple, whatever it is, the driver of that multiple tends to be growth you know, some sort of terminal value growth and, and discount rate. And, you know, a lot of the value of a company is in that number. The next year or two are a pretty small percentage of the overall value. And so, and given how discount rates are, going, are, are, are falling with all of the liquidity that's being pumped, you can make the, you might even be able to make that argument that for a lot of companies, that number should be higher than before the crisis. And so, and from a theory perspective to me, I understand what's going on. I'm surprised at how fast it's happening. But, you know, the hardest part of this recovery, I think, is going to be sitting tight and letting it happen. Absolutely. I mean, uh, Eric, any, any thoughts on that as well? Uh, I think just generally, uh, you know, if you're, if you're fighting what you're seeing in an individual stock or the market and it's going against what your thinking was or what your expectation was. Uh, admitting that you're wrong and reassessing is incredibly valuable. Um, you know, whether you have cash on the sidelines and you're fighting a market that's going up or you were invested in something and it's going down, uh, just be quick to reassess what's going on, what you're seeing, because maybe it's not the market, maybe it's you. Um, yeah, markets don't care what you think. I mean, they, we like to think that they care about it. No. Yeah, I mean, I'm part of some, some investor groups and stuff, and, so, and, and the, the overwhelming commentary is, is fairly bearish. And, you know, the market's not doing what these people think it should do or what the economic data, you know, and, and some people just can't get over the, you know, whether they're short the market or, they, you know, whatever it is. Um, the market doesn't care what they think. Um, and... Maybe some things are irrational. Um, there are certainly pockets of irrationality out there. I'm not going to dispute that. Um, <clears throat> but you know, on the whole, what's happening doesn't seem insane to me. It just it's just happening faster than I thought. For sure. I mean, it's definitely you definitely have to ask yourself, and it's weird when you see a news thing, you know, coming out across your phone that uh, Ackman's selling out all of his uh, shares in, Berks in Berkshire. You know, you have to, and then you see the markets up, you know, six seven hundred points in the last two days, and you're just like. Yeah, you know, I feel like all of us are just doing that on a daily basis. Yeah, yeah. Everybody, everybody gets things wrong, and uh, you know, it's we get things wrong too. Um, it's but we just, you know, we try not. I, I really want to be right, and I want to be right so much that um, uh, I'll admit that I'm wrong just so I can be right faster. Uh, <laughs> it it, it tends to be the the way I think of things. Uh, but you know, that being said, I, I there 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 are cases where I, I'm wrong for some time and. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it, it happens. So, um, well, you're wrong for some time and then you're right. That's right. <laughs> just like, I bought, hey, look, just like, you know, look, I bought the stock when it was lower and hopefully it was going to go up. I mean, like, you know, things, things change, right? I mean, <laughs> yeah. there's certain, there's certain people out there that are kind of like stopped clocks and they're, they're right twice a day. So this is true. It this happens. 
This is true. All right, guys, I got I, I got to now uh, ask you one of my my favorite questions to ask everybody on here as we're uh, you know rounding the bend here. I know you guys are busy. Well, actually, no, you're not busy, but I'm. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You know, I don't want to take up too much more of your time. So uh, sure. with, with that, you know, what, what investing experience would you say taught each of you guys the most in your careers? Uh, Eric, we'll start with you. Um, I found that with myself, you know, I sometimes was in a rush to get there. Uh, and I didn't appreciate the fact that your human capital and your financial capital if they grow at a very similar pace, um, probably leads you to a better spot than if say there's a dislocation where say your financial capital grows a lot quicker than your human capital. Um, you're probably more prone to making errors and bigger mistakes and that's not a good thing. Um, so just appreciating that aspect of investing. I mean, it's a, you could spend a lifetime learning about it and getting better and, you should do it if that's your passion. Gotcha. Yeah. And, and Gary? I, I'll just say broadly, I mean, you asked what, what's taught me the most. But I'm just going to say collectively the mistakes. Um, and I never let a good mistake go to waste. So I've made a lot of them. I've made just about every mistake you can, you can think of. I've bought a stock that looks cheap, but was actually expensive because the earnings were going away. I've bought a stock that... Um, you know, where insiders were doing things that they shouldn't be doing. I bought, um, you know, and they were some mismanaging the, parts, the business. But the parts can never be separated. Some of the parts stories where the, the parts are never going to get torn apart. Um, buying something because XYZ smart guy bought it. And, uh, you know, he's smart and we're going to follow uh, that. It, it, you know, it's the mistakes. It's learning to do your own thinking. Everything that we're in, we're in because we own it. We, we own the thinking. It's our thought process. We didn't get the idea from somebody else. Um, we've, and we've done our own work and our own thinking. And, and so the mistakes influence the thinking. We try not to make the same mistakes twice. It's hard because sometimes the same mistake has a different face. It's sort of like, or they're, they're kind of like breeds of dog. You know, uh, they're all dogs, but this mistake is a golden retriever and this mistake is a German shepherd but they're both dogs. They're, 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 they're the same species. They just look different. Um, and so collectively it's, it's, it's the mistakes. And I try to own the mistakes when they happen and I try to learn something from them so they don't happen again. Uh, and then that just sort of drives uh, being independent in your thought process because, and knowing why you own what you own, because inevitably something's going to go wrong with an investment. And if you don't know why you own it, you're not going to be able to, you're going to, you're going to make even more mistakes with it. So, um, that's, that's what I would say that the, the, the mistakes collectively and those mistakes have influenced me to do my own thinking and to, uh, and to really own my own process. Perfect. Well, I think we just came up with a new show right there just called investing mistakes. Stuff happens, you know, and then, yeah. I, and then yeah, I, either... I mean, if I was, if I was going to teach, <laughs> if I was going to teach a course on investing, it would, it would be all case studies. And it would be, um, you know, overwhelmingly mistakes. Well, I, I, I hope we can develop that very shortly because I think that would be really fun. You know, so with, well, fun and also therapeutic, I guess you'd say. That's yeah, right. right. <laughs> so, with, so with that, guys, where can my audience go and find more information about Accretive Wealth Partners? Well, we have a website, accretivewealthpartners.com. We have a blog on that website where we write stuff. 
Uh, we have a mailing list that they can sign up for if they just want to shoot an in, uh, email to you know, Gary or Eric at Accrued Wealth Partners. You can be on, on the list for our quarterly letter and other stuff that goes out. Um, we have a LinkedIn page. If you follow us there, we post stuff. Uh, where, where else, Eric? Did I hit them all? Yeah. If you want to have questions, you want to go talk to us, send us an email, give us a call. Contact information is on the website. We're always happy to talk to folks. Perfect. And do we have, do we have Twitter accounts too? Cause I know, I know a good amount of our audience also is on Twitter. Uh, no, we don't have a company Twitter account. Uh, we don't, uh, we don't have, uh, not tweeting on, we we're kind of lurkers on Twitter where we follow people, but we don't have an account. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I'll promise not to expose your, your, uh, your lurking accounts. I, I, I That's that. right. <laughs> well, with that guy's um, thing, Yeah. Sorry. No, go ahead. I was going to say, with that, guys, thank you so much for joining me today. I really do appreciate it. It was a lot of fun. And uh, I look forward to our next chat. And, and just, like I said, we're starting a show soon. So uh, we'll, let's get after it. Oh, Thanks. great. Yeah, yeah, we really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for having us. This was fun.